Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What caused the Civil War? Why did the southern states secede? These are hardy perennials of Civil War discussion and speculation. Suppose you could go back in time and ask southern politicians why they asked their states to secede. We can't do that, but we can talk to someone who's done the next best thing, who's found out perhaps the smoking gun of what caused secession. He is Charles B. Dew, author of Apostles of Disunion, Southern Secession Commissioners, and the Causes of the Civil War. We'll talk with him today on Civil War Talk Radio. Hotline. Please, my daughter, I think she might hurt herself. Okay, ma'am. Her arms and legs are moving in all different directions. Yeah. Ma'am, is that music I hear? Yeah, I put on the radio and then she just lost control. Ma'am, she might be trying to dance. What? Dancing, ma'am. No, 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 I've seen dancing and that's not it. The less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this afternoon in June of 2009 from my office in the Brewster Building on campus at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. It's a beautiful summer afternoon. Summer session classes are in, but it's Friday afternoon, so everyone has gone to the beach, or the uh, two-thirds of the buildings on campus are under construction and torn up, so are the parking lots. It's a typical Friday summer afternoon here in eastern North Carolina. Uh, And as always, although using the university's phone line, not speaking on behalf of the university, uh, and I'm sure my guest will equally speak for himself and not any other institution when we get there in just a moment. The uh, the summer proceeds here on campus. The Civil War course that is currently underway is uh, going extraordinarily well. Sometimes the summer courses bring out uh, the best in students, those who actually take time uh, to be here or here because they want to be here. And we've just been having the... Uh, most interesting discussions in our uh, Civil War course. There are also the uh, students who come from other universities. They're back home in Greenville, perhaps for the summer, but they think they'll take a course. And there's a sort of competitiveness with the, the East Carolina students, not uh, to let anyone who might be uh, attending Chapel Hill or Duke or some other nearby place uh, show them up in any way. And I'll admit uh, the faculty might feel a little bit the same way we want to let those students know uh, they could be getting educated by us at uh, a fraction of the price that they're paying at Duke uh, and getting just as good a product if if they came here. Uh, so it's been fun teaching the course and, and uh, moving things along in that regard. The uh, budget for listeners who 
can stand to hear another word about it this week, uh, continues to be debated in the state legislature. Uh, it will not affect the fate of Civil War Talk Radio because the state's allocation for this program is zero dollars, so they can't cut it unless they send me a bill and make me pay them, which uh, I would cheerfully ignore. So there is uh, no risk to the program, except the possibility they could take the phones out of the offices. Apparently, uh, Florida campuses, uh, state universities there, the professors have lost their telephones in a uh, bid to save money. Um, eventually, I suppose they could also turn off the lights. Now the professors bring in flashlights as well. Uh, the uh, degree to which state legislatures will try to shave uh, costs out of higher education knows absolutely no bounds, apparently. Uh, but they've left us with the phones for now, so uh, I don't have to go home and call from my, my home office to do the show, and that's good news. And uh, this week, as the legislature finally approaches voting on a budget, they're, they're pulling back from the cliff and taking away some of the most onerous cuts, uh, having tortured the uh, faculty and staff of the, the UNC system uh, for months now with the possibility of draconian cuts. They're now reducing it to merely severe, uh, and probably uh, that's what they'll negotiate and settle on. It does remind one of, of Winston Churchill's point about democracy being the worst possible form of government uh, except for all the others, uh, and, and that's what we're experiencing uh, locally this year. But enough about uh, 20th century education. Let's move back to the Civil War era. Uh, thanks, as always, to everyone who has sent in uh, contributions to the show. You can do that at uh, civilwartr at aol.com if you want to send a PayPal contribution for $20. Get a copy of All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And if uh, you wish to send a suggestion in, some more good suggestions uh, keep coming in each week and We'll be using those for the fall season. There will be one more new show next week, and then we'll take the summer hiatus and, and recover and line up new shows for the fall. Uh, so your suggestions are welcome as we prepare the fall lineup. That seems to take care of the business end of things, and I'm happy now to uh, plunge back into the past and welcome our guest to the show. He is uh, Professor Charles B. Dew of Williams College. Uh, Professor Dew, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Did, Couldn't be uh, better. Did, do you go by uh, Charles or Chuck? May, may I uh, be so informal with you? Uh, Charles is good. Um, my mother-in-law calls me Chucky Baby, but she's the only one. I'll, I'll, I'll refrain from that then. Okay, good. And please call me Jerry. Uh, uh, Gerald is only reserved for my, my mother and only when I'm in trouble. Okay, uh, I, I understand fully. Yes. Well, uh, appreciate you being on the show. Uh, you're at uh, at Williams, which is a private college. Correct. Um, are, are you suffering the economic downturn the way the rest of us are? Yes, we are. Uh, not as severe as what you were describing in North Carolina and Florida. Um, they haven't threatened our telephones. Uh, but, yeah, our, our endowment took, oh, maybe um, a 30% hit at the worst of it. It's now around a 20% uh, hit, and, and the endowment income is very important for a school like this. So we've, um, we've had wage freezes and things of that sort, but the uh, administration's promised not to fire anybody, so that's good news. That is, that is very good news. Uh, you and I spoke briefly when we were arranging this show, and I mentioned my, my older daughter is uh, uh, 
a high school junior. She'll be applying next year. And, and she had looked uh, with some interest at places like Williams. But then this, this past week, the uh, New York Times had a story about how some colleges are uh, having to uh, reframe their financial aid policies. They just don't have the money to admit every student uh, mm-hmm. who needs help. Uh, is that happening at Williams? No. Uh, need-blind admission is going to be the last thing to go. Uh, it defines the school. Uh, if you get in, the means will be provided you to attend, uh, no matter what your your family income. So that that's sacrosanct. Uh, we're also need-blind for international students. Uh, that's very expensive. Uh, we may reduce that number a little bit, but uh, it's done so much to help the campus and broaden the education for everybody here that we're we're loath to to cut those even uh, back. But I think I think that may be something that will be trimmed. But no, we're we're not uh, threatening financial aid at all here. And that's uh, that that has been protected here at, at ECU. We're at the other end of the scale in terms of affordability. Uh, but they they've kept the tuition raises very low, so uh, even a, a full the full ticket at, at East Carolina is still quite inexpensive, and, and we're able to provide education to students who otherwise couldn't get it. Right, uh, wonderful, yeah. And, and that that's what what it's good to hear that at at every school that needs to be the first thing to uh, protect and the last thing to give up on is the students. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, well. In again, let's uh, you get enough of this in, in your day job as do I. Let's get back to the past. Uh, you, you teach Civil War courses, I gather, at William. Yes, I do. Uh, I teach a course on the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, I teach that as a senior level uh, research seminar, and uh, the students have to do work in primary sources, and it's a uh, it's part of the seminar requirement for our majors. So uh, I have a fair number of students in there. A good number from the South, um, and generally it leads to lively discussions. Yeah. Do some of those students go on to uh, uh, to graduate work in Civil War history? Yes, uh, some do. I think it's gotten tighter and tighter. Um, admissions at the better places are tough, and jobs are scarce, so I think it's it's really, a, it's almost like a, a, a calling to a church now, I think, to to pursue a Ph.D. in history, but there are still people who wish to do it, thank goodness. No, that, that's true. I, I remember speaking to uh, my late mentor, David Herbert Donald, when I was in graduate school, uh, saying, am I not on a fool's errand here? Uh, there, there are no jobs. Uh-huh. And he, he said, well, Jerry, this is, I think this is what you have to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I think he was right. Uh, you and I share uh, Professor Donald. He was uh, at Johns Hopkins when I was finishing up. And ah. he was the second reader on my dissertation. Ben Woodward kept me on. I guess I was his last Hopkins student after he went to Yale, but Donald was there. So I had I had really high-priced talent on my Ph.D. Wow. <laughs> Woodward and Donald, yeah, you cannot get uh, get anything beyond that. It's amazing. No, absolutely. Wow. Well, then, I, I, of course, you know, you know, I'm sure we're saddened to hear of his, his passing a couple yes. weeks ago. I was very sorry to hear that. Had Had his health not been good for a while? But apparently not. Uh, he had been scheduled to appear at a, a seminar at Harvard in April that that I was at, and we, those of us there, were hoping to see him. But uh, I guess his health was worse than anybody knew. Ah, uh, well, it's it's a sad, sad business and a great loss. Yes. So, uh, so you were at Johns Hopkins for your I graduate was. work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what did what was your uh, dissertation? It was a study of uh, the Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond um, before and principally during the Civil War. 
and then carried that into Reconstruction. They were, of course, the principal ordnance manufacturer for the Confederacy, and, and I uh, sort of stumbled onto their, their records and um, decided that that's what I wanted to work on, and turned out to be a fortuitous choice. The, the story was fascinating, and I had a lot of good primary source material and, and uh, got, the, got the dissertation done and got it published, which is what we all aspire to do. Oh, absolutely. The the first book of yours that I recall reading, pull off the shelf here, uh, was on a different ironworks, um, uh, Bond of Iron, Master and Slave at Buffalo Forge. Yes. Uh, where's Buffalo Forge? Tell us a little bit about that. Nine miles from Lexington, Virginia. Um, it's in the valley. It's it's very close to both VMI and Washington and Lee. Uh, it was a Iron-making uh, facility, uh, agricultural, um, the usual sort of iron plantation, as they call them uh, in those days. And that book actually was an outgrowth of my first study on the Tredegar. I was intrigued by the fact that um, the Tredegar Ironworks used slave labor extensively, but I was frustrated because the records were very, very sparse dealing with that phase of the company's history. So I... I thought, uh, well, I'll just see what I can find out about slave ironworkers. And um, in the course of that research, I kept finding Buffalo Forge materials. And um, eventually I went to Lexington and walked into the courthouse. And, and you know what uh, courthouses are like if they survive the Civil War. They're, they're treasure troves of information. And so I found a, a lot of material there. Um, the family who had owned the property still owned it. Uh, they had a lot of records out at the house and made them available to me. So I just uh, sort of wandered into a, into a great uh, story that, that enabled me to carry the, the tale of the slaves down to the level of individual workers and their families, which was very exciting. That is, let me pick up on both threads. First, at, at the Tredegar Ironworks, you said slave labor mm-hmm. operates. It. Did the, the company own the slaves? Uh, they owned some, but they also hired on an annual basis, which was very common. Uh, industries in the South regularly hired slaves for the year, and uh, the Tredegar owned about, oh, 80 uh, slaves that worked principally in the rolling mill, but they supplemented that number dramatically during the Civil War, and, and slaves were working in all areas of, uh, of the company's uh, operations during the war. Now, that seems like... Uh I, I mean, I suppose uh, if, if one's economy uses slave labor, this is what you would do. But uh, given that, that the war would mean freedom for the slaves, there'd be some risk in having slaves work on your ordinance. Yes, I think that's fair. And um, I, I wasn't able to pinpoint whether that was one of the reasons some of their ordinance was uh, was failing. They had some rather uh, catastrophic explosions uh, during the war. But... Uh, most of the slave labor was out working in the uh, valley in the iron blast furnace uh, area. They they had uh, furnaces dotted all up and down the valley of Virginia that was supplying them with pig iron, and that's that's where most of their slaves actually were working. Uh, and and so places like Buffalo Forge, where they're out in the countryside, which one doesn't normally associate with with the iron industry. You picture the dark satanic mills kind of thing. Yeah, that was that was the pattern in the north. The southern iron industry was pretty much a rural with uh, charcoal fired um, stacks out in the out in the valley in the mountainous areas. One uh, one thing I, I 
enjoyed about Bond of Iron was the, the detail in describing the iron-making process. Uh, I, I recall when I first read Moby Dick thinking, you know, I could actually now get on one of these ships and do the job of, you know, a number three on the whale boat. Uh-huh. I know how to do it. Uh, yeah. He's described it in that detail. Right. And I feel like I could, you know, it wouldn't be very good iron, but, but uh, I felt like I could actually get in there and, and you know, do something in an iron in, well, in you, a need, fort. you need you need some help uh, to get from <laughs> from the ore and the charcoal to the finished product. But yeah, uh, I thought it was important that people understand the the technology so that they could appreciate what these slaves were doing. It was highly skilled work. Well, and that, that was really the point of it was how skilled it was that these slaves couldn't be coerced into making good iron right. uh, because it, it was uh, it was a craft. Indeed, and and that's why the industrialists invariably used a task system. Um, and those tasks were set at a reasonable level, and the whole intent was to get the slave to work to that point and then go beyond it, and they would be paid. It's called overwork uh, for anything they did over and above their task. So some of the Buffalo Ford slaves I studied were able to amass uh, considerable amounts of money for themselves. One even had an account in a local bank. And if you, you also point out, I guess, if you mistreat a slave that you've hired for the year, uh, the slaves, to some extent, had veto power over whether they would work for someone the following year. They did indeed. Uh, they would return home with with tales of uh, abuse or hard driving, and the master would be reluctant to send his very valuable property, if you want to think of it that way, back to that master. And they would spread the word among other slaves. And um, these hirings were done at uh, courthouses. Um, around Christmas in uh, eastern Virginia. And if the word got around that somebody was, was not treating his slave employees right, uh, the slaves would push back. They would threaten their master with the prospect of their running away from that facility. And so they did have some leverage, and they were, they were willing to use it. Yeah, this brings to uh, a really challenging point in, in writing about slavery or teaching about slavery, uh, which is trying to reconcile what you're saying here about slaves having the ability to push back, having the ability to make money, even have a bank account in one case, uh, uh, you know, having a certain amount of autonomy within the system of slavery. Uh, if you describe that in any way where it can be taken out of context, uh, are you not whitewashing, uh, so to speak, the slave system? You have to be very careful, Jerry, and, and I always tell my students at the beginning of courses where I deal with slavery that never forget that the system is based on coercion and it's based on the chattel principle, and that is that human beings are treated and are legally property. Never lose sight of that. Um, it's sustained by force and it treats humans as um, as if they were property. And and what I... What I try to get across is that it, at the same time, slavery was uh, one of the most complex as well as simple institutions around. Uh, the simplicity comes from the fact that it was a moral abomination. Uh, I think the complexity comes in the way that it worked itself out on a day-to-day basis with master and slave, uh, both striving to exercise authority and control and Clearly, the big guns were on the side of the master, but my point in the book was that slaves had the ability to push back, and it's pretty clear that they did, and in some cases were able to carve out uh, a better life for themselves as a result. It, it is uh, a challenging story to tell, and one that, that that book tells 
quite well. We'll take a short break here. We'll come back and talk uh, more about uh, this very interesting subject of slave iron workers, but also uh, about the secession conventions, as I mentioned in the introduction. We'll do that in just a minute, talking with our guest, Charles Dew, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. To find out why the southern states seceded, the best strategy would be to ask the people who made the decision. We'll talk with a historian who's practically done that when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Charles B. Dew author of Bond of Iron, Master and Slave at Buffalo Forge, that we've been discussing in the first half, and more recently, Apostles of Disunion, uh, a book about the Southern Secession Commissioners, which we'll talk about momentarily. Um, Charles, before we get off the, uh, the subject of the, the slaves who, who made iron at the Tredegar Iron Works or at the small uh, uh, iron forges throughout the Shenandoah Valley and other parts of Virginia, uh, I remember reading, it was probably about 10 years ago now, in Illinois, some local school district had a contest, uh, an essay contest or something for uh, the middle schoolers or high schoolers. And a student won by writing uh, something that involved a description of slavery that emphasized the uh, the, the strength of the uh, and resilience of the slave family under the pressures of slavery. And... Uh, uh, it echoed uh, pretty much the, the scholarship of the era uh, that, that uh, scholars had come to recognize that, that the slave family was not destroyed uh, by slavery. But the when when the uh, some calendar was published with the winning uh, quote from the winning essay on it, 
And it caused a, a fury of local protest that this student was making slavery seem too nice. Hmm. Um, and that uh, uh, they had to reprint the calendar and, and, and so on. Uh, it, 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 the student was echoing the most uh, uh, current and progressive scholarship by scholars of slavery who are, of course, hostile to the institution. Sure. But are but were attacking the old caricature that, that slaves were helpless under under it and could not find ways to right. uh, resist and accommodate. Uh, but to 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 members of the general public, it just looked like uh, uh, that it was taking a different view. I guess what, what that raised for me was the issue of just how difficult it is to say anything about the subject without making someone angry. Yes, I think that's true, um, but the victimization model only gets you so far. Um, slaves were human beings who, who lived their lives uh, day by day, and by any measure they were between a rock and a very hard place. I think what historians have been trying to do is find the room that they carved out for themselves, uh, despite the limits that were placed on them. And, and the family was, was clearly the rock. Uh, on which slaves, I think, built their their survival mechanisms. Uh, it was a true haven in a heartless world, and it was also uh, immediately vulnerable. The master could uh, break that family up in the blink of an eye and uh, put someone up for sale or, or divide an estate. Uh, the time when a master died was great peril uh, for the slaves because the estate could be distributed to various and sundry heirs. So... I think I think you do have to be careful. You have to make sure that your your message is clear and that you're not trying to sugarcoat anything. Um, the idea of sugarcoating slavery is is pretty far fetched to begin with. It seems to me. It is, um, but that might be a good segue to uh, the question of sugarcoating secession. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, uh, the question, uh, you know, the eternal question: What causes civil war? Uh, we'll, we'll never cease to be argued, certainly, um, as long as there are uh, Internet blogs to be filled. People will, will write things and sure. say things. Um, but in your book, Apostles of Disunion, uh, from 2001, you, uh, uh, you, you went right to the source in a way that no one really had before. Tell us about the, the, the concept of the book first. Sure. Um, well, in, in an odd sort of way, Jerry, all my books are connected. Uh, the Tredegar book led me to uh, Bond of Iron, and um, uh, Bond of Iron led me to the secession commissioners. I was I was interested in learning all I could about um, Civil War um, acquisition uh, practices by the Confederate Niter and Mining Bureau, Iron, and so forth. And as part of the Buffalo Ford story, I went through the um, uh, series four of the official records of the Union and Confederate armies. I'm sure you and certainly anybody who knows that source knows that these deal with the Confederate home front. And at the very beginning of Volume 1 of Series 4, I found one of these uh, secession commissioners' uh, public statements, a letter he had drafted to the governor of Kentucky. And for some reason, I, I just paused to read it. And it really floored me uh, because the language that he was using to justify secession uh, took me back to my childhood growing up in the segregated South. And I had heard a lot of what he was saying as a boy, uh, growing up on the white side of the color line. Um, people had had talked to me about uh, how segregation was best for both races and that colored people, as they were referred to then, 
uh, really preferred it and all this sort of thing. And and I found in this uh, in this rhetoric of the secession commissioner from Alabama some of the same language. And I made a note of that. I said I'm I'm a little curious as to who these commissioners are. And uh, when I finish the project I'm working on. I'm going to go back and find out. Uh, so I did. That was really the genesis of the of the book. I discovered that a number of states in the Deep South had appointed these men to go out and carry the message to other slave states. They had uh, two jobs, really. They were to explain why their state was seceding, and they were also trying to persuade those that had not yet seceded to follow them. So it was clear that the message that they were going to deliver was a pretty powerful one. So these people have a vested interest in in convincing others, other Southerners, white Southerners of their time, to to go along with secession. Correct. Correct. That's what and, they're out and, there to and do. They, um, I found oh somewhere in in the neighborhood of forty of their uh, public speeches and letters, and and I found them truly remarkable in opening a window into that secessionist mindset. They were laying it on the line. Uh, as you say, these were white Southern politicians talking to other white Southern politicians about what was really at stake uh, with Lincoln's uh, election. And the the language was clear and unmistakable, and it uh, really had very little to do with states' rights. So, so uh, what what do they lay on the line? What, what What's their... They were what convinced. Are their arguments? Well, they were convinced. States' rights, I must say, was was uh, a, a justification for the uh, the action they were taking, and and they would they would say we have every constitutional right to do this. But with states' rights, you always have to say to what purpose is it being used? How is it being uh, applied? And in this case, it was being applied to slay, uh, to save slavery. Um, they were convinced that Lincoln was an abolitionist and that the Republican Party was abolitionist to the core. And you put the man and the party in power, and they argued that the institution of slavery was doomed. Um, they had uh, a very um, apocalyptic scenario uh, that they carried around the South as they were trying to convert and explain. Um, they basically argued uh, three things, that uh, with Lincoln and the Republicans in power, uh, white supremacy would be destroyed. That was that was starters. Uh, the second thing they forecast was a race war. Um, the South would be drenched in blood as slaves rose up uh, against their masters, and, uh, and a race war engulfed the South. And the third thing they forecast was what they called uh, amalgamation, and that's the uh, sexual uh, breaching of the color line. Uh, miscegenation, I suppose, would be the 20th century term, but but they were. They were very blunt and very direct that if uh, slavery ended, that you would see the white race um, subsumed in a, in a black sea, is how they described it. And, and that would include not only the violence of a race war, but it would include this, this amalgamation scenario, which in some ways was their greatest fear. And, and the, the answer to this, the only way to prevent it would be secession. To, to secede, yes. Uh, Lincoln would be uh, in control on um, March the 4th, 1861. He would have the Army and Navy at his command. He would be able to appoint postmasters and customs officials throughout the South. These men would be 
abolitionist provocateurs. Um, they had a whole scenario uh, sketched out as to how Lincoln and the Republicans were going to do this. And uh, they, I sincerely think they believed this. Uh, their language was too direct and too blunt, and uh, they used the same talking points, I guess we would call them today, over and over again, and convinced me that, that not only was the secession cause really driven by their fears over slavery, but uh, the, the fears over the future of the white race. Well, the uh, what about the tariff? Uh, did, was this not, uh, I mean, you say states' rights are at least mentioned in terms of constitutional justification. Uh, they, they hardly mentioned it, and uh, when it did come up, uh, I remember one of the South Carolina uh, commissioners speaking to the uh, Virginia uh, Secession Convention. Uh, his name was um, uh, John uh, Smith Preston. Uh, he said during the course of his speech that, uh, that, that the South and South Carolina had lived under the yoke of onerous tariffs and that, that that was not what was driving them, that they had decided for the sake of the Union that uh, these should not be uh, wedges that would, would uh, divide the country. Uh, but when it came to abolition, uh, it was a new it was a new story, and the gloves were off. And uh, although the tariff had been uh, talked about in 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 the uh, Congress for decades, uh, it had been getting lower uh, pretty steadily. And mm. uh, the the tariff issue had pretty much faded into the background. And, and as I say, this this one commissioner said, it's clear that this is not what's driving us. Now, the after the war, that's not the tune we hear. Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis mm-hmm. write some very long books pointing out that this is all about states' rights. Sure, and and I think that was done with with intent. Uh, they did not want to to see the the blood that had been shed during this uh, in, incredible conflict. They didn't want to see that uh, turning on the issue of slavery, and so they they brought forward the states' rights argument and. And said that essentially the the slavery issue was simply the the issue that the constitutional questions were joined over, but it was the constitution, not the institution of slavery, that was driving it. Uh, it's fascinating if you look at what they said uh, prior to and in the early stages of the war. It's quite different. Um, Jefferson Davis made a speech in Congress in July of 1861 in which he described the causes of the war, and slavery was front and center there. And, of course, uh, Alexander H. Stevens, who, after the war, said that it was all a, a states' rights issue, he gave the famous cornerstone speech in Savannah in March of uh, 1861, about the same time Jefferson Davis was, was being inaugurated. And Stevens said that the cornerstone on which the Confederacy rested was the cornerstone of slavery, and and made no bones about it. He, he gave... Uh, he gave a, a pretty dramatic address, and, and it was fascinating to me. You, you find multiple pieces of evidence sometimes, as I'm sure you know. Um, he claimed in his diary that he kept in Fort Warren in Boston Harbor when he was arrested at the end of the war that he had been uh, seriously misquoted in that cornerstone speech, that the uh, reporter who had taken the shorthand notes had uh, not really gotten his approval and they had been hastily done and so on and so forth. I found he had given exactly the same speech in Atlanta uh, a few days before on his way to Savannah, and it was reported uh, in detail in the Atlanta newspapers. So my point was that if he was badly misquoted in Savannah, he was 
just as badly misquoted in uh, in Atlanta, um, but and it, in the same way, in the same way, and and clearly he was he was trying to to cleanse the record a little bit after the war, and did so very pointedly in his uh, autobiography. Well, it, it, I mean, it seems to me this is as close as we have ever come to the the smoking gun of what secession was about. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you found here the people who argued for secession one state to the next and who did it in 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 speeches to groups that they had to convince but also did it in private letters to one another correct um, has this and and yet uh you know one can look online and find uh, uh neo confederate websites that take different views sure um it seems to me you've got the smoking gun, but we've still got the controversy. <laughs> well, do you, do you think that one's ever going to die, Jerry? I, I kind of <laughs> doubt it. Probably not. No. Uh, having been born and raised in the South, it's, it's certainly what I learned growing up, and uh, it's, it's in a way it's part of your your cultural heritage. I think in in the South that that the war was really a a noble enterprise. Uh, brave men on both sides fighting for what they believed in. Both thought they had a just cause. And uh, slavery doesn't fit that picture, and I understand that. Uh, my ancestors on both my mother's side and my father's side fought for the Confederacy. And indeed, my father was named uh, Jack because his father revered Stonewall Jackson. Uh, so I certainly grew up in that culture. And what I tried to do in the book was say, it's time we, we look this in the face, that, that there's some reconciliation and some healing to be done. And it needs to come from from all sides, and uh, I hope that the book would help in that regard. Um, it hasn't been severely attacked. I think I'm still flying a little under the radar, maybe as as um, far as some of those websites go. But I really did try to to get the the slavery thing out where people could take a look at it and uh, see just how critical it was to secession. Well, it it does seem uh, you know compelling evidence that that's what what underlay the argument at, at the time and and uh you know again it's not news to historians uh by any means but it does uh it, it does ruffle certainly some feathers with with, with some people and who yeah. want to cling to a more romanticized view of the causes of the war sure but i think it's a good point that that doesn't necessarily invalidate uh everything about everybody who served in the war uh, on either side. Ab- absolutely not. And and just a couple of things on on that point. Uh, I did a, include at the rear of the book, it's a small book, as you know, it's not very long. I did include a couple of critical documents. One is a speech that a Mississippi commissioner um, named Harris made before the Georgia uh, Assembly. And the second was the public letter that Stephen Hale from Alabama wrote to the governor of Kentucky. That's the one that was in the official records. Those are included in, in, in their entirety at the rear of the volume because I wanted people to see the full context in which these men were, were uh, advocating secession. And the second point I want to make is that uh, the reasons that, that wars are, are triggered, that, that precipitate the war, often has very little to do with why individuals enlist and go to fight in them. And I think Southerners enlisted for a whole host of reasons. Uh, defense of hearth and home. Uh, W.J. Cash in the Mind of the South says that, that a Southern white male of that era carried a chip on his shoulder, and if somebody got in his way, he would uh, threaten them to knock it off, and if they tried, he'd go after them. And uh, 
Southerners didn't walk away from a good fight. Uh, I think there are, there are myriad reasons why people enlisted, and and certainly the the courage and the heroism of of individual soldiers is uh, without question. And I don't think that that necessarily uh, should be left. That's a very good point, and we'll stop on that point, take another short break. We'll come back in just a moment, talking today with Charles B. Dew on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. When we return on Civil War Talk Radio, we will, for the first time in many weeks, unlimber the Civil War time machine. Join us for that on Civil War Talk Radio. In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Charles Dew of Williams College, author of Apostles of Disunion. It's a study of what Southern politicians said to the various uh, secession conventions, what uh, the commissioners sent from one seceded state, uh, sent to other states, uh, said about secession and why it was desirable. It is in many ways the uh, the smoking gun of what caused secession, uh, as we see what the politicians at that time in that place said was the reason for leaving the Union, not what they wrote afterwards when the issue had been decided against them. Uh, a fascinating book, a slim volume, but uh, but one with, with some compelling evidence that is certainly worth uh, uh, worth taking a look at for folks listening to the show. I think you will find it uh, very interesting. Uh, Charles, we talked about uh, the... These two books, Bond of Iron uh, on, on Slave Iron Workers and Apostles of Disunion, and, and you mentioned that they're they're connected, as, as was your dissertation before that. Mm-hmm. Um, where does the thread lead? Uh, uh, any new projects? 
I'm I'm doing a uh, an odd sort of book right now, Jerry. I've run across um, individual documents during the course of my research that I thought were just so powerful that they almost had a voice of their own. And um, I found that as I was thinking about my next project, I kept coming back to some of these because I've used Xerox copies in my Southern History course or my Civil War course. And um, what I'm doing is doing a chapter on each one of these documents. Um, just give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is a uh, slave market circular um, issued by a Richmond auction firm in the summer of 1860. It's a printed form with uh, the categories of slaves, uh, men, women, children, and uh, the prices uh, next to their names are, are written in uh, in a range of dollar figures. And I don't know of any single document that says as much about what slavery was as that market report. Uh, children are sold by height, for example. Uh. And uh, in the market uh, sort of report at the bottom, uh, the clerk has written, uh, good young woman and first child, $1,500. Um, it's a special category because she's indicated that she can bear children. So my 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 project is called Voices from the Slave South. Um, it deals with these documents. And the chapter that I've done about the slave market report deals with uh, the slave trade and its importance. Um, I've got a document dealing with uh, Thomas Jefferson's estate and the sale of his slaves um, out at uh, his, his summer place in uh, Bedford uh, County, Poplar Forest. And the letter describes how a slave girl has been pushed into a fire by the overseer and uh, the man who bought her at a, an auction came to pick her up and found that she was damaged goods, and uh, he wants a reduction in price. And the whole episode just just speaks so uh, powerfully of the the involvement of the founding fathers in slavery and in Jefferson's case, his inability to extricate himself from the institution because of his debts. And uh, of course, the only the only slaves he did free uh, were members of the Hemings family. So each each one of these documents, I think, gives me a sort of uh, jumping off place. Uh, to talk about slavery and the Old South, and, and it's going to end with the Civil War. Um, I haven't picked my document there yet, but I, I tell my friends it's the, the sort of thing you can only do when you get to my stage of your your career, where um, you've, you've sort of uh, run a lot of the race and you just want to do what you want to do, and uh, this is what I decided I wanted to do. Well, that, that is a good stage to be at, certainly, not to feel the pressure of... Uh the tenure review or right. this or that, uh, to be able to, to choose what to write. That's uh, that's how the system ought to work. Yeah, it's how it ought to work, but we know different, don't we? <laughs> yeah, no, normally, that's right, there's pressure to to, to produce something yeah. that uh, may or may not be, be the thing that fits exactly what you want. Correct. Um, the, the, in, in a large scale, I, I suppose we've seen a, a sea change in U.S. history regarding slavery and, and the coming of the Civil War over the last decades where slavery is, is no longer seen as sort of an incident to the early growth of the country, but it was becoming more and more central to it. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And I, I think there's, there's been resistance to that, and I, I think if I can recapture how I envisioned American history 30 years ago, I don't know if I would have readily agreed that, of course, it was central, but... 
uh, I think I think that seems to be becoming clearer over time that that, that really does affect everything, as you say, the founding fathers, uh, the colonizers. Uh, uh, it, it, it's interwoven in the whole fabric. Indeed, it is, and of course, it was the failure of the of the founders to come to grips with the future of slavery that set the stage for the Civil War. Um, they they followed a sort of containment policy. The Northwest Ordinance, um, the ending of the Atlantic slave trade, try to try to sort of keep it where it is, and then trust the future generations to come to grips with it. Um, and I think the the great failure of the founders was the failure to stare slavery in the face and say we've we've got to act. Uh, that was asking a lot of politicians because it was so important and there was so much money involved. But uh, in the end, it's got to be the great failure of the of the founding generation. I think. And then one can argue that it's redeemed by the the Civil War, the the, the sacrifice uh, uh, poured out by both sides, as Lincoln says in the Second Inaugural. Yes. Uh, paying for for every drop of blood drawn with the lash. Six hundred and twenty thousand dead is a heavy price to pay, isn't it? It it, it, it truly is. And then uh, to take it another step forward, uh, we have another generation of failure where the the promise of emancipation is betrayed. Uh, through Reconstruction and Jim Crow, and a and hundred years later, there's another social convulsion to try to redeem things in the civil rights right. era, and and we're still not there. Uh, but but that gets us out of the Civil War era. I'll, I'll, I'll move us back there. Um, in the uh, introduction to this section, I mentioned the the time machine. It's a, a question I uh, ask guests, and I haven't done it in a while, but it, it, I've enjoyed this. I, I thought I might put this to you. If you could. Go back in time for one hour, safely, uh, but surely, but only for one hour. Uh, where would you go, and who would you want to talk to? Well, I think quite clearly, the person I would want to talk to is Abraham Lincoln, and I'm sure you've gotten that before. And that, that's true. Maybe, a... maybe from from just about everybody. Uh, I find Lincoln absolutely fascinating. He, he to me, represents the best um, that America can, can produce in terms of, of leadership and his combination of intelligence and compassion and uh, courage and stamina. He, he just is a remarkable figure. Um, I guess I would like to be in the room when he's composing the second inaugural. Um, when he is really trying to to get the country to think beyond the horror that it's going through and think about the peace and to think about a generous peace, uh, to me that's that's just a remarkable step for a democratic political leader to make. And and Lincoln did it. And the eloquence of his language um, is is timeless. I just like to hear him. Uh, try out some of those phrases uh, while he's composing the second inaugural, I think. Do you imagine him reading these aloud as he writes? I think he did. I think he did. He he basically taught himself how to write by reading. And I think that, that his language is so wonderful. Uh, I think the, the cadence and rhythm uh, to his language almost has a poetic quality. And, and I think he, he must have uh, tried it out on his ear. Uh, because that's essentially how he learned to write. That's true. I, he said something at, to to Billy Herndon once, his law partner, about uh, uh, saying things aloud, giving a second chance at, at catching the meaning of something, mm-hmm. reading right. it and hearing it. 
that's that's a very good uh, uh, tale, uh, and I think that indicates your your answer. The answer to your question, Jerry. Yes. Well, that that would I. I'd, I'd like to be there too, definitely. Yeah. With all the the books on Lincoln this year, the the bicentennial year of his birth, um, have you read any of the the new things, or uh, has the the overwhelming flood made it uh, the kind of thing where you just sit back and go, oh, I'll, I'll read the reviews? Yeah, I have I have uh, stacked my uh, my summer reading desk with with some. Um, I've got Michael Burlingame's big two-volume uh, Lincoln that Johns Hopkins just published. Yeah. Uh, I've got Jim McPherson's new book on Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief uh, that I definitely want to read. Um, I'm unfortunately the faculty secretary of our presidential search committee here at my college, oh. so my time isn't my own until that process is completed. But uh, sometime this summer I'm going to be free from that, I hope, and can turn to some of these works. Uh, I, I just had occasion, by the way, to, to host Jim McPherson at our college for an honorary degree this past weekend, which was a, a very nice event. That's good. He, he, and Now, he was supposed to be at this event I mentioned in Cambridge in April, and he had some kind of heart issue, and his doctor wouldn't let him go. So well, he, he's, he, he's had a little trouble with uh, arrhythmia, uh, with an irregular heartbeat, but it, mm-hmm. it's something that's under control, and uh, he's getting treated for, and I... I he doesn't seem too worried about it. So that's good to hear. That's yeah, very good to hear. I think he had to cut back on his schedule for a while, but uh, he he doesn't seem to be too worried, and he says it's actually a fairly common. Oh, well, that's that's a reassuring note. Uh, a reassuring note to conclude on. Uh, as always happens, we're at the end of our hour too soon. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate you being on the show, and I've enjoyed our conversation. Well, thanks, Jerry. And if I could just put in a plug, uh, the Please American do. Civil War Center in Richmond, Virginia is in the old Tredegar Gun Foundry. It's a wonderful museum, new museum. does the Union and the Confederate and the African-American story of the Civil War, all woven together. And if any of your listeners are going to be in the Richmond area, the American Civil War Center at Historic Tredegar is really worth a visit. It, it, I've been there, and I can, I can highly recommend it as well, definitely. Oh, thank Listeners, you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to get that, that additional uh, confirmation. <laughs> Validation is there, absolutely. Good. Good. Well, thank you again for being on the show. My pleasure, Jerry. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.